Welcome to Well Connected, a podcast for faculty, staff, residents, and fellows of UT Health Houston, brought to you by the UT Health Employee Assistance and Wellbeing Programs Office. I'm Julie Van Orden. And I'm Anna Alvarado. The goal of Well Connected is to create opportunities for employees to connect the dots between three things what's going on in our head and heart, how these thoughts and feelings affect our well being, and where we can find resources through the university to work toward a resolution. Our guests today are Jennifer Kofer and Alex Hurst. Jennifer is the director of the In Tobacco program at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center, employing 23 years of experience in public health and tobacco control. She collaborates with internal and external partners to promote evidence-based cancer prevention and tobacco control initiatives across the domains of policy, prevention, and cessation. Alex is the program director of the N Tobacco program at MD Anderson Cancer Center. Alex has managed a number of programs at MD Anderson since 2016. He currently manages and oversees the Certified Tobacco Treatment Program, Project Echo Teach, and Teach stands for Tobacco Education and Cessation in the Health System, and the Eliminate Tobacco Use Initiative, just to name a few. Welcome, Alex and Jennifer. Thank you, and glad to be here. Yeah, thanks. Very happy to have you all here. So Jennifer and Alex, how did you two get into the business of tobacco cessation? It is a great story, one that goes back to my family, actually. Uh, I grew up around grandparents who I absolutely loved and spent every weekend with, but their smoke made me sick my entire life. As a person with asthma, uh, I would go home and have bronchitis or pneumonia, hospitalized 12 times before the age of 10. Oh my. Oh. And then as a college student, when I was learning what public health was, I was like, that's what I want to do my degree in. And then there was a whole category of tobacco prevention and cessation and treatment. And I knew right then that I want to start my career and get my degree in public health and be a health educator and help people like my grandparents quit. Fantastic. What about you, Alex? What got you into this field? Yeah, sim- similarly to Jennifer, um, I grew up in a very rural area in Louisiana, and I saw my grandfather uh, fight with tobacco and its ailments, as well as a lot of my family members, and then not there not being enough resources or access to care nearby. And so when I went to school, I heard about, again, public health at a macro level and wanting to do more upstream on the prevention side. And so being able to say I can actually work in that field and bring these resources to those that I love most um, was certainly impactful for, for me and reason why I decided to work in tobacco for now a decade. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah. You know, I when I hear you talk, Jennifer, about having asthma, mm-hmm. I'm so sorry, first of all, that you suffer with that. And then being in a, in a smoke-filled home, that's, you know, a tremendous thing to overcome. It's Interesting in another perspective for me, because when I lived in the state of California, I managed the tobacco control unit for the county that I lived in. And I had a grandfather call me one time and he was crying. He said, I have a new grandchild. She was brought into my home and she has asthma and my tobacco smoke almost killed her. I need to stop smoking. And so we went through all of the options that were available to him, but it was sometimes, I mean, he had smoked a lifetime and sometimes we don't know what that one thing is gonna be that helps somebody make that decision to quit. So I think actually toward the end of the podcast, we might, if we have time, we're gonna talk a little bit about that, but we have some other things in store for today's conversation. But wow, that's, um, I can't imagine the hospitalization 
education and the issues related to that. And you and I uh, both, uh, Alex, growing up in rural communities, and it's really, and in the South, it's yeah. part of the fiber. It was the part, I mean, I was born in North Carolina. It's part mm-hmm. of the fiber of, of, um, of the economy. <laughs> it was, at least. So. So tobacco cessation outreach is often focused on identifying and targeting populations based on culture and demographics. What are currently the highest risk groups and and why is that? All right, we're going to dive right in. Yeah, okay. So we, um, there are several uh, population groups. We'll start with kids. Um, Kids are the tobacco industry's next future generation of consumers, right? So that's a vulnerable population. Can I I interrupt a second? When you say kids, can you define, like, what age is that? Absolutely. So adolescents we describe as 13 to 24 because the young adult brain develops until 26 years old. Mm -hmm. So we could say kids, K to 6th grade for prevention, 7th to 12th grade for intervention and really empowering them to understand. But that's also when the social media influence comes around. We'll link that back to some future conversation about the the evolution of the tobacco landscape. But kids are the first and foremost most vulnerable population we want to protect from this product. But they are also what the industry knows as their future consumer. So they are very present and active in the lives of kids. But there are other demographics. I'll talk to Alex to take on a couple of those other populations. Yeah, definitely, Jennifer. And, you know, those that we consider um, at high risk for tobacco and vaping, of course, are going to include individuals with mental or behavioral health disorders, those that are dealing with things like anxiety or stress, um, bipolar disorder, etc. People who identify as uh, part of the LGBTQ plus population, we also find that they also are using um, tobacco at higher rates than the general population. And then lastly, um, African-American community. We find, again, high use, especially when it comes to mentholated products um, being used amongst the African-American community as well. So it's used as a coping strategy? Great question. And and it is. Um, And so for for individuals with behavioral health disorders, we often find that they are using tobacco to um, weaken or dampen their symptoms, whether it's, again, like I said, bipolar disorder or anxiety. Um, and so it is using a, is, is used as a coping mechanism. Um, and so we found that, again, historically being leveraged and used by um, uh, mental health facilities um, as a coping mechanism for that specific population. But, Jennifer, you might yeah. want to be able to add more. If you go back to, like, the 80s and the 90s, we hear especially in the policy realm, that these groups, when we were working on smoke-free places, they were like, nope, keep out psychiatric facilities. Our patients need to smoke. They were being treated for whatever disorder they're there, but they were allowed to still smoke and continue that behavior. And so we're trying to change the narrative, and many behavioral health individuals and counselors are changing the narrative on, no, if they're going to address this substance use or this issue, let's address it all, and let's switch the narrative and switch the myth. And therefore, we don't need to exclude this population. But we have seen higher rates in this population because of the historic call out to exclude them from, say, smoke-free policies, allow them to still smoke on campuses and mental health facilities. So again, changing the narrative to the now of, no, let's address, if we're addressing other comorbidities or other co-substance uses, let's address tobacco and nicotine as the addiction that it is. It's interesting that you said change the narrative Mm -hmm. because that makes it sound simple because really what it sounds like you're doing is changing the culture. That's right. Which we know is a longitudinal and harder thing to do than just change what we're talking about. That's it's right. such a it's such a culture shift. Wow. Interesting. Well, speaking of culture, 
how were the tobacco cessation efforts navigating those different cultures, religions, and beliefs that are accepting smoking as part of their vital core? I'd love to take a step back and think about the landscape and each of those cultures because yeah. this this whole product and industry maker knows their audience, right? So when right. we talk about the tobacco product landscape, we have the traditional cigarettes, which we know and people have used for, for decades. We have deviations of cigars. You have the really fine, expensive cigars, and then you have the single flavored cigars. And then we have hookah, which is, again, culture traced back to Indian roots and some other communities as well. If you think about tobacco as the leaf, that's a Native American sacred product as a tobacco leaf. Then you have smokeless, then you now have e-cigarettes and vapes and mods and all of those forms. So the tobacco landscape is so broad. And then you can narrow it down to the product and the cultures um, that are using products at higher rates and how they are making that part of either rituals or celebrations. And so we can take any one of those products and uh, dissect it at mm -hmm. a different level. Alex, I'll post it to you because yeah. you, you really look into some of these. I do. I do. And so, yeah, it's very important. And I think you make a really good point when it comes to cultural use. Um, I'll say specifically, uh, we'll start with hookah first. And again, we see hookah really coming on the scene uh, as of recent on a lot of college campuses or around in the college community. Um, however, we a lot of folks don't know that it actually originated in India, um, the use of the water pipe or hookah. And, you know, this again was a sacred ritual um, within that use where it originated. However, now that it is immersed in this new culture here, um, we find it being used as a social uh, meaning. So folks would, you know, hover around a hookah for uh, hours and hours um, using that water pipe and not really understanding what the effects and what the dangers of that lingering um, secondhand smoke as well as the, the firsthand uh, use of that product. And there are some estimations of there actually are. how much is being consumed by a hookah session and it's astounding numbers. And that's what we want to educate on with the mm -hmm. culture and in and, and the communities of you're sitting at a hookah session for mm -hmm. one hour is the equivalent of... 100 cigarettes. Wow. Whoa. Yeah. Yep. yeah. Wow. So those Does it are, have nicotine? Yes. And most, I'd say 98% of tobacco products have nicotine or they have synthetic nicotine, which is non-tobacco nicotine. It is a whole wild, wild west of products out there and ingredients. And that's why we need... FDA to regulate all of these products, to know what's in them, to know what people are consuming and be informed about what they're consuming. Most people are just showing up to a celebration, having a hookah session. They don't even know what they're consuming because whatever they're tasting is flavored with a flavor that they like. And that's the common thread across all of those products that we just described, whether it's cigars, flavored cigars, the grape, cigarillos, mm -hmm. you name it. It's the flavors that are drawing people in, and it's the nicotine that's going to keep them coming back because their addiction is forming, and they're very unaware. Mm -hmm. Oh, my. So you mentioned hookah. What about, you know, Jennifer also mentioned the, the leaf for the native population. Tell us, is there anything that you can tell us about that? Yeah, so again, that, that again is a very sacred leaf um, used in a lot of tribal rituals uh, by, uh, of course, um, uh, Native Americans as well as Alaskan Natives is what we found. Um, and it's still to this day being used as such. Um, so because of that, we have now started to label uh, commercial tobacco as a, a separate um, a, a separate product and, and our understanding as public health professionals. And so when we do go to conferences and uh, share this information with the public, we want to be very distinct and intentional that we are talking about commercial tobacco and not 
those that are used for ritual purposes. And so we are very intentional when it comes to that because of that. that and that purpose. just means that the industry is taking this product and mm -hmm. adding things to them right. and then labeling it as such. So it's right. light. You don't see Because natives light. aren't putting grape flavored Correct. in their, exactly <laughs> in right. their leaf. Correct. Exactly. Well, could you talk a little bit more about how that marketing is, is changing. The language that you use has changed when it comes to respecting these cultures and these rituals. Yeah, well, I have to say, I have to give kudos to our federal government partners. The CDC has embraced um, national networks focused on each of these populations, from LGBT to behavioral health professionals to um, the group that's talking about tobacco is sacred from a Native American perspective. And so they're bringing them into the dialogue and actually having conversation and letting them lead to teach us. Uh, those of us that have been in public health for 20 plus years, um, you know, we were always trying to talk on behalf of people instead right. of sometimes bringing them in. So CDC's really elevated their voices and now we can call them into our conferences, have them as guest speakers on the webinar and they'll tell us, here's how we address tobacco on our tribal land, because tribal lands um, aren't um, having to comply with some policies, and so they can make their own rules, and they do want to make their own rules. Just last year, Navajo Nation went smoke-free. So every wow. Navajo Nation workplace, school, et cetera, you can't use Yay, tobacco. Arizona. Yes. <laughs> so they, Arizona. they are having the conversation amongst themselves, and we are just working together as amazing partners, and that's how it should be. Wow. Very interesting. Um, so we, we did talk about the East Indian mm -hmm. and the Native American Indian, mm -hmm. but there are some other rituals that people use. And I'm thinking about the cigars around births of babies and celebration. I know that my husband was in the Navy and he would smoke a cigar about once a year when they were on a military cruise. He worked on aircraft carriers and all the jets came in and they were safe and there were no accidents, you know, accident-free zone. They might um, have a group of them that would just say, okay, all the flight ops are finished and have a cigar. So I hear respect for what do we do with the populations that, that are not trying to, you know, become addicted, but they want to celebrate the birth of a child or a, a special event? What's... I just think there's some unintended consequences by modeling that behavior. And I know celebrating successes are associated with things. So we've seen it in sports, winning big Super Bowls or national football champions. You see the cigars broken out. And my heart just skips a beat because that college quarterback is modeling the way for all the 11 and 12 year olds that are watching him in that moment and how he celebrates. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's the cultural connotation and the unintended consequences of I'm now teaching the next generation. This is how you celebrate a success with a cigar versus another behavior. So for me, it's just the perspective of looking at it from the influence um, to younger generations, but that generation ahead of us, absolutely. They celebrated big milestones in life through cigars. Um, but that's just my personal perspective yeah. and Alex might have a different one. Sure. And, and I'll, I'll add in, um, you know, there, I, I think from my perspective, there's a, a common misconception that cigars aren't as bad as cigarettes because they're not talked about as often. Same goes for, for things like hookah. Um, but just because we're not talking about them as publicly or you don't see as much marketing about um, the dangers of these products, they are still even so more dangerous than your traditional cigarette. Um, and so, again, because that's not being talked about as much, I think you see folks using them more socially, uh, which un unfortunately can become a gateway to 
longer, more frequent use of other products. Um, and so from my perspective, that's what I'm often seeing whenever I see folks using cigars. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because what your perspectives are, your respective perspectives are on that. I hear in my, you know, in my head, I'm saying again, they're trying to change the culture, not the narrative, just not just the narrative. And so I do hear that, you know, we can change that culture. I even am thinking about when I think about the cigars, there was a time, I think it was in the 80s, I'm older than all of you here, but that they came out with bubblegum cigars, pink and blue bubblegum ones, and they have chocolate ones now because that it's got to be tied to trying to um, not send the message that but they're in the shape of a cigar, so probably yeah, that's yeah. going to be something that we looked at. Yeah. You know, you also mentioned, uh, did you have any more questions on culture, Anna? No, we can move on. Okay. Um, I, was, I was thinking about um, something else that you guys said, and you mentioned the nicotine that's in all of the other products. You mentioned vaping and hookah, and I know there's e-cigs. When I was first starting out in the tobacco, you know, um, tobacco programming, managing programs for tobacco, it was all about the nicotine addiction. And so it may start with some rituals, but then addiction happens. And we had the same issues that the, the populations that were being targeted were the youth. And that's because, the, you know, the marketers are trying to ensure that their company continues to have revenue in the future. And so they're looking very early. So that has not changed at all. But with these other products, you've kind of answered it, but I'm not sure. I want to get clarity. Do they still have the nicotine and are we still concerned about nicotine addiction or is it the process of people just getting something into their system or is it the coping when we talked about you know, folks who start using it for a coping mechanism because of mental health issues or something like that? I had a lot of questions in there. Did you get where I'm going? Yeah, let's unpack the yeah. e-cigarettes, and we'll call it the Electronic Nicotine Delivery System, a.k.a. e-cigs, vapes, mods, pods, whatever you want to call it. Um, the landscape has been highly unregulated the past 15 years in the United States. E-cigarettes came on the landscape in the United States 2006, 7, 8, but they've been around in other countries before that. Um, the FDA is slowly catching up to now a problem that's out of control because the e-cigarette rate among our kids is off the charts. It's three times that of smoking right now in our high schools, specifically in Texas. But yes, 90 to 98% of all of those products that are electronically delivered, meaning an e-heated product, um, delivers nicotine to the system. And in fact, when Juul was the most commonly used pod-based system, meaning a rechargeable add in a new pod, and then recharge your device, not throw it away. They even stated on their packaging, one jewel pod equaled 20 cigarettes in a pack. Wow. Worth of nicotine. Our kids did not know that. And I think even adults who were switching to try to have a quit journey and include that as a quit tool did not know that. So these other products that are now on the landscape, like uh, Puff Bar and these other really cool designed products to deliver nicotine electronically have the dosing of nicotine levels equal to that of cigarettes, if not more. Mm. And that's where the population is unaware. And all the populations we described are using e-cigarettes at higher rates. 
Um, and that's where we have to address from the policy perspective at the FDA level to control how much nicotine is in these products they have to disclose. And that's where we have a gap and some knowledge of what the industry who makes these products is actually disclosing how much nicotine they're putting in their products. So how often, well, I guess it depends on the user. How Correct. often would they change that? We're hearing from kids to adults who are using one to two whole cartridges a day. That's oh, my two goodness. It's like two packs oh, a day. And these goodness. are kids. These are adults. It spans the whole generation. Yeah. Not anything more? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I, I've heard uh, ad hoc from whenever we do presentations in the community. I mean, I've heard of young kids, you know, middle and high school, using two pods a day, again, being two pack a day, smokers essentially. Um, and again, super alarming, but knowing that, of course, the nicotine is actually addicting them for the long term. But how are they getting there is always like my question. And it's the flavors. We know majority of these products are have some type of flavor that's drawing the kids in. And that's really what is rooted, um, you know, that's really what's rooting um, this issue with the kids. Because, again, it's creating um, something that's easier to inhale for them. Um, so they're not br inhaling anything harsh. They're, they're inhaling something cool, whether it's a strawberry melon or, or, or unicorn or some other, one of the 7,000 flavors that's out there. And allowing them to use that flavor as their gateway to this long-term addiction that's then created by the nicotine. Their gateway. But listen, I heard their identity. When you said mm -hmm. unicorn, mm -hmm. I'm thinking about a young person who just like feels like I'm just so unique. I'm like a unicorn. And I see unicorn as one of those. Yes. That is my new flavor. Yes. Oh, oh my gosh. Absolutely. And he's right with 7,000 mm -hmm. flavors, if not 14,000, the last count a researcher did of how many types are out there. And it's all about the labeling of whatever name. And actually, it's not just unicorn. Unicorn vomit is a flavor. Oh, God. Um, and then there's... I went into Harry Potter territory yes. there. <laughs> then it's, you know, all of the... Uh, think about all of our childhood favorite cereals. Mm -hmm. That is, Those are flavors. Um, wow. And so that's what's drawing first-time users in. Yeah. Never smokers first-time users in. And that's why we have such a big concern in public health that we have to address what is on the market, what's on there illegally, and then educating the consumer on what they're putting into their body. Because as we discuss in public settings, flavors are meant to enhance food and drink, right? I have lemon in my water. It's meant to enhance my water. And it's a system, food and drink has an exit system in the body to be graphic. Your lungs and inhaling doesn't have an exit system. Oh. So we're ingesting things that are being made to be, in, we're inhaling things that were made to be ingested. Right. That's why we're seeing some respiratory complications or cardiovascular complications. And the research are still doing studies on what e-cigarettes e does to the body. But it's those flavorants and the other ingredients that are being added in. Again, meant for our food and drink, not meant for our lungs to inhale. How are health um professionals, health educators doing? Because <laughs> I feel like this is such an overwhelming topic. And I feel like before the e-segs the e came about, I felt like maybe we've gotten a full grasp on this. Maybe this is it. <laughs> you know, I, yeah. I, you know, I, um, I was formally trained in um, the tobacco cessation program from the American Lung Association. And so I, I thought before the start of e-segs, all right, this is great. This is this is yes. it. But I, what what's the landscape like? What how are health educators again feeling about this? Is do we have a way out? Yeah. Oh, 
I'll, I'll start, <laughs> and I'll just say it's it's the wild, wild west, oh, right? Gosh. Um, and, and it's it is a little uh, unnerving and um, and a little scary because it seems like almost every day there's a new product that's hitting the market mm-hmm. and something else that we're up against. Um, and so you know, just taking into consideration of the ever evolving landscape and how do we keep up with that? Like you, Anna, I, I too, and Jennifer as well, were trained in in the freedom from smoking with ALA. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and we thought that we had this thing finally beat whenever we saw a, a drastic decrease in the combustible tobacco product use, right? The the traditional cigarette. And now with e-cigarettes on the market, it just makes things so much more real that again, it, it's sort of whack-a-mole. When, when does it stop? And how do we how do we finally end this product use? And Jennifer? I think it's a team sport and we can't do it alone. <laughs> yeah. And obviously depending on the population we serve, right? If it's LGBTQ is our community or we serve primarily black African Americans or we serve youth or we serve uh, Native American or Asian American, we find what they're using at the highest rates and let's start there. So if I'm serving the black community, I'm going to start talking about menthol products and how it's actually harder to quit menthol. And let's talk about some interventions for that behavior change. If it's kids, I'm going to do prevention and cessation to help those kids quit. If it's LGBT, let's talk about the stigma. Let's talk about how they're targeted by the industry and let's give them the tools to quit. It's a team sport. We're going to need every healthcare professional, every part of the healthcare team to help us as health educators. Um, I think I've had to learn in my 23 years to continuously learn what we were doing in 99 and 2000 is not working right now in 2023. So where is our audience member as well? And let's have an intervention adapted for that. So we're hearing text to quit programs, right? Kids are texting. There's a text to quit intervention. Apps, there's an app for that. There's an app for everything. There's an app for Spanish speaking population an Asian speaking population. Like, so they are tailoring interventions to meet the person. And I think that's the approach we have to take and not one size fits all across the generations anymore. Yeah. I think it's also sad and unconscionable that we are targeted. (laughs) I mean, I know that we're targeted for everything. I mean, (laughs) all the algorithms target us, but I just am am so sad. And um, so I'm a little bit disgusted (laughs) that the targeting of populations and going into people with uh, with the least and um, doing the most damage in those populations. And um, I mean, we all, we all have, I guess we're all vulnerable to whatever it is that they want to uh, figure out is our in. I just think it's terrible to target the children, to target uh, specific populations who are vulnerable because it's a difficult time for them right now, and, uh, or that they're more prone to stress, or maybe they're, um, uh, socioeconomic, I guess, uh, uh, there's, I don't, I don't even know. I mean, the demographics around what makes a person more vulnerable in, uh, certain communities. So, I mean, because you mentioned, uh, the black population and, um, menthol, you know, how do they figure out where our vulnerabilities are and then go for it and like go for the jugular and they get success with it? Well, we have evidence, actually, because the industry lawsuits in the late 90s required the tobacco industry to expose the documents of their research. So they researched each population, and they would say, with the African-American community, we're seeing anything mentholated sell at higher rates, so let's go into that. And then they would sponsor black festivals, 
black events and they would only cater and have advertising for menthol products. If you look at low income neighborhoods or black predominant neighborhoods, you'll see only menthol products targeted. So that is a practice, a predatory practice that predatory is Predatory is the word exposed. I was looking for. Yes. yes. Like the word same thing if you switch the script for youth. One of the things that Jewel was sued about were their predatory practices with social media influencers for kids. And they were getting into the algorithms of young kids knowingly. And that was their practice that they were sued for. And there's a national settlement with Jewel right now with states and their attorney generals to pay out to states in upwards of $50 million per state to course correct what they were doing to target kids. Every one of these populations we've mentioned, the tobacco industry knows their habits, their behaviors, their preferences, and they have preyed on them for years. So sad. Okay, well, you've pretty much this whole entire episode <laughs> Can we flip it have, positive? have talked about why it's so difficult. What, what else is out there? Why is it so difficult to quit? Yeah, I, 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 I do. I mean, to piggyback on what she's asking about why it's so difficult, how many times does it take to try and quit? Yeah. Because I remember a statistic from way back, and I'm like, does that still stand true? So I'm going to listen. It, it still stands true, um, Julie. Unfortunately, it, it does. We, we hear often that if you're going to attempt to quit on your own, cold turkey is what folks call it, um, it can take upwards of 14 attempts to, to try to quit on their own, um, which, again, is kind of mind-boggling, right? But, again, we, we know that more than two-thirds of smokers uh, want to quit each and every year and actually make an attempt to do so, whether it's at New Year's or at some other point uh, throughout the year and observance day for them. Um, and so, again, we want to make sure that they get the best help with that quit attempt because we know what doesn't work and, and cold turkey does not work. Um, nicotine replacement therapy, working with a healthcare provider to offer counseling and motivational interviewing, those are the things that help. Counseling coupled with nicotine replacement therapy, and medication like uh, Chantix or Verniclin and Bupropion. Those are the things that really work, and we see the highest success. Because, again, we know that tobacco is very, very addictive. And so you really can't it's, – it's really hard to do it on your own, which is why we see it takes so many times to quit on your own. So let, if I can summarize that into two buckets for your listeners, and if they're healthcare providers – Please, we have a training that you can learn how to treat tobacco and nicotine addiction. But for the general audience, Alex mentioned medication and counseling. That's it. Two best things together, the highest success rates. So if we can That's talk to really our healthcare useful. provider, two buckets, I need counseling. And yes, you may not be like, I'm not going to go to that group. You can do individual counseling. You can actually get individual counseling on the web, on the Zoom, um, or through a texting program. And then you get your medication on your own. You have over-the-counter and you have prescription. You can choose what works for you. So many people are scared of certain, you know, medications, but that's the whole uh, tailored approach, and it all depends on the yeah. nicotine addiction level, yeah. why, with how it's prescribed. But just think it's two things together that work the best for your success. You know, I, I want to add on just one thing, and I know that my information is dated, but I don't think it matters how old you are either. You can have smoked all your life because I have known two of my famous cases was that grandfather that I told you about uh, who had smoked all his life. And another woman that I worked for, worked with uh, when I was at Arizona State, and she was getting ready to retire. She smoked all her life. And when she sat down to do her budget, she realized, I can't afford to smoke and retire. And wow. she quit awesome. overnight like that. She said it was done. And so it's their it's, motivations. I think 
the why behind the motivation for some people. And, uh, and then <laughs> one was finances and one was family, right? Um, and then, you know, the, uh, just the desire and the, the resources, so good. Do you have any other resources to provide our listeners? We do. We have several, but I want to lead with the one for parents and kids. And then Alex has several that are the best go-tos that have been around a very long time, very established. So if you're a parent of a youth or young adult and you want to learn how to be supportive in the quit journey, and I'm, I'm leading with that because we know our kids are exposed. Either they're using or their friends are using. And so a parent um, or a supportive adult can text the letters Q-U-I-T, quit, to this number 202-899-7550. And they enroll in a support system where they can get the supportive messages and how to approach the conversation and um, how they're doing as either the parent of a youth who's vaping or a college kid who's vaping, and then they can get support themselves and approach that conversation in a supportive manner. So that they can text QUIT to 202-899-7550. If someone who's listening is actually an e-cigarette or vape user, they can actually text uh, VAPE-FREE, T-X, VAPE, V-A-P-E, FREE, F-R-E-E, T-X, to 88709. These two tailored interventions are literally just in your phone, texting as you want and as you subscribe. But there are longstanding 20-year evidence-based resources that I'll punt to Alex to share. Yeah, Yeah, and some of those uh, resources, like Jennifer mentioned, that are a little bit more accessible to everyone, regardless of where you live um, here in the U.S., is our state quit lines. And so um, that is simply 1-800-QUIT-NOW, Q-U-I-T-N-O-W, 1-800-QUIT-NOW. Again, that's accessible for any Texas resident um, that is interested in whether it's learning more about how they can take the next step, uh, any additional resources maybe that they want to read over the benefits of quitting, or if they want to start their counseling session that day, they can call that number. Um, They also have a text messaging program uh, through that same uh, uh, center as well as online chat. So again, if you don't want to pick up a phone and you prefer maybe to just chat live with an agent, that also is available to you um, uh, through the 1-800-QUIT-NOW phone number. Uh, In addition to that, I would say next up is the referral resources that are available. I mentioned the healthcare providers and being able to work with a healthcare provider. Uh, MD Anderson has a tobacco research and treatment program uh, that we offer for our patients and their families. Um, I believe you all have a service here at UT Health, and you'll find a lot of clinics, um, especially those that are federally qualified health centers, also will offer tobacco cessation resources and services um, as a service for uh, in-person. And so again, those are a couple of go-to resources that we always are promoting and actively sharing for those that are interested in quitting. So good. Thank you so much for that. As we wrap up, one final question for both of you. What's the most profound thing you've learned about the health education surrounding tobacco and its related products? Sure. I'll take it, Jennifer. I'm happy to go first. And then I know you have some really good things to share, too. Um, I think the most profound thing that I've learned um, since working in this over a decade is that we can do more good upstream. Working to help people prevent them from ever using these products so that we're not having to go downstream and treat. We know that we're saving them dollars as well as our economy, being able to help them uh, completely Um, uh, prevent initiation. So again, that's why we focus so much on youth and young adults at an early age to make sure that they are educated and understand the dangers and the harms. 
and of course the benefits for living a tobacco-free life. Um, and again, that's really why I got into public health and that's why I'm so passionate about this issue is because it's a lot of prevention and upstream work. Um, and so that's, mm -hmm. that's my why. I will piggyback off that with profound is like policy changes behavior. Policy shapes our behavior. And so I've been in public policy as well for the 20 years. And if we can reduce the places people are allowed to smoke, they'll be less likely to smoke that much. If we can increase the price on these products that are known to cause death, disease, and disability, they're less likely to have access to the products. If we can control the products through policy change, we can impact behavior. But for those where policy isn't going to make the difference, let's do that tailored intervention for that population. For the kids, keeping them from starting, helping them quit, help adults quit, but giving them access to quit with no barriers. So insurance providers, removing all those barriers and co-pays. You don't need a PA to go get counseling, right, for treating tobacco. And then when they seek their medical team, that medical team being trained and ready to do intervention, leading with empathy and starting to meet them where they're at. And so that's what I've seen change, I think, and be profound is that we're constantly learning. The policies have to keep up. Uh, we're a little bit behind in the state with policies addressing tobacco, but we have an amazing behavioral intervention team between us at MD Anderson and you at UT Health. Our medical providers are absolutely in the conversation and it being a team sport engaging the other healthcare professionals and really targeting these individual and I don't mean targeting in a bad way individualizing the populations that are being targeted by the industry and helping them realize you can quit this addiction and finding their why and their motivations that's what I've loved to see change year over year um, and again constantly learning and keeping up with technology because we didn't have all this in the yeah. 90s when we started this career now we have apps and texting yeah. and let's use that to our advantage for this behavioral change agree thank you both so much yes. for joining us today and for this valuable yes. conversation thank um, you for choosing yeah. this talk. Yeah. we yeah. really appreciate for having you us. <laughs> we love uh, being partners with you on projects and I, uh, on the steering committee for the eliminate tobacco use program and i also i really appreciate your coming in and helping to um, folks to understand that you know your why is because you really care about this and you really care about people's health and it's not that you really care about controlling or stopping someone from having some sort of a behavior that they'd enjoy it's that we want you to live a long time so that you can enjoy other things in your life other than uh you know chasing after an addiction that's right so i'm going to close this out and i'm going to speak to the listeners uh, for information on tobacco cessation visit the eap website you can select the resources tab at the top and click on tobacco cessation, or you can email us and we'll send you the link to this page. And you can email Anna and me at wellness at uth.tmc.edu. For more information about our employee assistance and well-being program services, you can call us at 713-500-3327 and our confidential team will direct you to the faculty or staff representative who can help you. You can reach us 24 7 for urgent issues and during regular office hours for non-urgent business. Also important for you to know is that many EAP and well-being services are available for your dependents. We thank you for listening. Take care.